Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this next podcast episode, and I'm pleased to have my co-founder, Bill Proudman, here today. Thanks for joining, Bill. You bet, Michael. Glad to be here and looking forward to our chat. Yeah, one of the things that want you to be able to share and us to dialogue about is the international work that you've trailblazed for our company over the last bunch of years and all the learnings that you've had. What might you share and say to the people in Asia, people in the Middle East, people in Africa and other places about what we found around how this work resonates with them and how has that impacted your cycle back here too? To do that, Mike, we got to start with sort of the premise of how our company got created, the way that it got created because of what was in response to what you and I were both noticing first separately and then together in the way in which in the U.S. and North America in particular, white men were largely on the outside looking in related to any issue of inclusion and diversity in the corporate life. And so hence the name of the firm as white men as full diversity partners was really as much about what our mission was in the U.S. based on what we saw both 25 years ago, which is actually still relevant today. And so I'd say for the first 15 years of our firm, I was really reluctant to do work outside of the U.S. because at its core, I was concerned that we would become a yet another clueless American going around the world telling the rest of the world what to do. And I, I think one of the downsides of our country over the years is we've done exactly that from a place of positive intent. And I didn't want to be a part of that. And so I was I was really resistant to that. And so for the first 15 years, I think we did two pieces of work outside the U.S. We didn't seek that work. It sort of found us. And then something shifted in about 15 or 16. And I think part of that is that, again, most of our global work now is through U.S. corporations that are global in nature. And I think the shrinking nature of the world First of all, we've got teams, regardless of where you are on the globe, that are more multinational than ever. I think people that are on those teams have sometimes an unconscious bias that because they have lived and worked around the globe, as many of them have, and they've also been on, they are on these multicultural and national teams, that they somehow, they're pretty up to speed and, and they're good. They're culturally competent. And the reality is, is that it's, none of us are ever as fully culturally competent as we would like to be. Is it's development's a muscle that we have to develop and use and whatnot. So our work in the last five years, four years actually, has really accelerated. We just in February we crossed over the hundredth program that we've done in 28 countries besides the Canada and the U.S. So we're now in 30 countries. The representation of people span a lot more than that. This is just where we're doing the work. I've really come to see it's some of our best work. I think the other work that we're doing internationally outside of North America has actually continuing to really impact our work back in the U.S. and Canada. What makes it what you consider our best work? Lots of times our, our best work really comes to what is it that our company is good at doing and how I've defined that consistently for the last five or six years. As I said, we're a leadership development company that operates at the intersection of inclusion and diversity which is different than an inclusion and diversity company that's doing equity work in corporations. So our leadership development work is also based off of a personal behavior model, where I always say we're doing three things with our clients. We're working to grow courage, and courage, as you know, can look in lots of different ways. We are raising consciousness. What is it that I'm not aware of, that I've never considered before, that doesn't you know, intersect with my orbit in my work and personal life. And then the third one, which is another C, is that we're strengthening our cultural competency. And that's that practice, 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 Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours to get really good at something. So when you're conscious of something, then you're really changing set of habits 
and practices at a personal behavioral level. Now, because of that work, we're not tactical experts related to inclusion strategy and other things around removing policy and barriers with that. That's important work of leadership. Our work is really helping leaders have a transformational moment and then to transfer that moment so that it actually gets repatterned into the shift of behavior as well as consciousness. So setting that stage, what I've come to really realize, and I've seen this happen in all of these countries that we've worked in, is that we're really good at creating a vessel that allow people to have a moment of intimacy with themselves and their colleagues, a transformational aha of something that they didn't know that they didn't know. And I've continually found that I've been all of my unconscious, now conscious bias about what a particular part of the world is capable of doing or their emotional resiliency or their willingness to share from a place of heart or feelings has been blown away. I was just did two sessions in Singapore with a group of not just Asian executives, but people from about 10 different countries, including all parts of Asia, that were some of the most emotionally deep work that I've seen in 40 years of work. And it happened in Singapore and with nationalities that I have routinely said, well, that they just don't go there related to that emotional vulnerability. These were intact teams. They were led by leaders who were in their heart, willing to be curious and also demonstrating that they needed to lead by example. What do you think really helped them go that place? Maybe they haven't been before. Well, I think one of the things that our firm has shown itself through our clients, and we've got 53 clients over the life of our firm now that have worked with us more than two years. We have three clients that work with us for 13 years, two of which have been 13 continuous years. What that tells me is that we are delivering on a value proposition that is fundamentally transforming those mindsets and then helping those leaders practice new behaviors, which then put them, the leaders, in the position to change the practices, policies, to not just create but sustain inclusive cultures. That's really different than we're going to help you create and sustain an inclusive culture. That's not our work. We're not a part of these cultures. It's the leader's responsibility to be able to be the steward and the caretaker of culture, and then also to shift that culture. And that has to start at the personal level. And so I think we do a really good job of creating a container that allows people to access something deep within and gives them permission, and then see that as a valuable piece about slowing down, being present, speaking authentically to self and others. And that has an iterative effect on their ability in terms of what's possible. And it's just I can't find a better word than magical. It has been magical to watch that happen regardless of where we are in the world and who we're working with. Was there any moment that served as an example of that magic from Singapore, for example, in your last few months of your work? Well, this isn't the last couple, but this is about last year sometime I was working with an intact business team from a consumer products company where in the course of this two-day deeper dive, one of the men actually in tears at this point when we got to this was talking about his own personal struggle with a 24-7 culture that expects him to put work above everything else in his life. And he had never shared this with anybody else on his team. And what happened there, it was a, really it was a magical moment because he got incredible support it also unleashed for other people to talk about work-life balance. And I watched a conversation about work-life balance that I never thought I would see in a part of the world that I had, from my bias, had ascribed to, well, that just they just work a lot of hours and there's a sacrifice that goes on. And I think this goes to the notion that all people, this is that sameness and difference paradox. One of the commonalities we have is that we want to have fully well-rounded lives. And it shifts around culture, what that means. But ultimately, people are not just work machines. They want to be able to be in the lives of their children, should they choose, choose to have any, or with their partner, if they have one, or with themselves. And so it was very touching to watch not only that man be able to share that and get in touch with something that he had probably long felt but never been able to put words to, but also to do that with his colleagues and to have them really greet him at the door to support him and for them to talk about it and then for them to say, okay, what's that mean? For What are we going to change? 
at a personal, interpersonal, and group set of uh, practices and, and behaviors. So that group probably did actually shift some of their dynamics around the heaviness of the workload. Well, I think it started. I mean, you don't, because you have an aha, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden it's like you flick the light on and all of a sudden there's light in the room. We talked about they will go back to the old pattern because it's not just has been patterned for the last six months. It's been drilled into folks like the things in my life been drilled into me to the point where I'm unconscious even of the habits that I have. And particularly habits that are not healthy for me, there's a comfort that comes with the rapidity of being able to do things over and over and knowing what I'm getting, even though that's not necessarily healthiest for me at a physical, uh, emotional, or even intellectual level. I mean, it sounds like you mentioned part of the magic is slowing down, getting connected into head and heart feeling, and just openness of curiosity and discovery in the moment. I'm, I'm guessing that's part of how you live in these moments too, how it continues to be a learning process for you. You never stop learning? No, we never stop learning. I think the other challenge for me as an American-born, white-skinned, heterosexual male that grew up as a child in the 60s, my work is to really understand what's the cultural context that I've been indoctrinated in. It's not to be apologizing for it. That has me then judge other people's behavior or mannerisms in a way that says, oh, that's, that's, that's a really good leader. That's not so good leader. And part of that management is being aware of how my own set of values and beliefs, which again, there's nothing wrong with those, are mine and they come from where I grew up, the generation I'm from, um, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things that I found enormously helpful in our work is in building rapport with a new group is to acknowledge, like I was in Japan recently, acknowledging to a group of mostly Japanese, not exclusively executives, who are working on gender equality. And that's an interesting construct in that country with what the Abe government is attempting to do. And they're dealing with 700 years of cultural norms about what men and women are expected to do, not just at work, but in the home as well. But to be able to acknowledge saying, we're going to have what might be a challenging conversation about gender and gender equality and gender role conditioning identity. And we're doing it in my first and only language. And so I just, I'm, I'm always really in awe of how people around the globe are always speaking my language mm -hmm. and then giving them permission in small groups, even in the large group, to speak in whatever language that makes sense for them. And while some people oftentimes, from just from a place of courtesy, don't necessarily take me up on the offer, I think that helps for them to feel that he sees me. He's not another clueless American that just thinks that the only language you're speaking here is his language in the room. And I attempt to be really humble about that. I attempt to be sincere and genuine with that. And that's just one way that our staff among a number of things, attempt to do to build a sense of rapport and to be able to bridge those cultural divides which are in the room. No matter how many books I read or how many seminars I go, I will not know what it's like to be a Japanese man growing up in that culture. I barely, I mean, I've spent my entire life understanding what that means for being an American man with a child of the 60s. And I understand some of that, but even not all of it. There's new layers that continue to reveal itself. I think another piece that I see you do and I've done is is really ask a lot of questions of the folks who are actually running that part of the company in those countries around what they see as the dynamics in those areas. What are some of the diversity topics that are up? How does the rubber meet the road here? Where are some of the tough conversations that people are having and not having? And then how do we actually localize some of our curriculum, including video clips and other things, so that it really resonates with them? The challenge, among others, is always around, again, my cultural lens, and particularly the cultural lens, which I still don't see, because as much work as I've done and as much as I think I know about my cultural competency and consciousness, there's still parts of my American background and upbringing that has me misinterpret what I'm seeing happening in the room. And acknowledging that publicly, I think part of that, Michael, is that we always say we are not necessarily content experts. While we've certainly been at, I've been, you know, you and I, we've been at this combined probably about 60 years together. While we certainly have a lot of knowledge that has come from the school of hard knocks in our work, that's not our first and foremost best attribute that we're giving to our clients. We're not transferring intellectual knowledge. Mm. What we're doing is we're creating an environment 
And the best metaphor I can see, and I, I did this actually in one of the sessions in Asia recently, is I started the session, I took out my iPhone, I put it on the camera mode, I flipped the the camera sign around. So when you looked at the face of your camera, you were getting a picture of yourself. And I walked around the circle of about 30 people. And I said, I just want you to, first of all, sit in silence. I want you to just sort of notice what's going on. Where are you? Who's in the room with you? And then I just walked around. I said, think for yourself about what you see for a second. Of course, they were looking at a reflection of themselves in my camera. When I got done with that, I said, so what do you think that's about related to why we're in the room for the next two days? And they got there immediately saying, yeah, this work is about me and it's about my colleagues and it's got to start there. And so they know that. We don't have to then instruct them about that, but we're guiding them and leading them into that. And they said, so now the other construct is that as an American who is used to the rugged individualism where everybody's going to speak from first person and if you have something to say and we always look for the, the naysayer in the group, that's a U.S. construct, and on other cultures, particularly Asian cultures, it's the group harmony piece. The nail that sticks up gets hammered down, and so there's a understandable reluctance. The thing that I've noticed in our work is that we're dealing with executives who are from lots of different nationalities around the globe, but they have a savvy around their ability to work across many different cultural constructs and contexts so that they're able to code shift relatively quickly without knowing what they're doing. And it's not that everybody has the same set of behavioral characteristics, because of course they don't, but it's not as simple as, well, all Japanese are just, they're going to be group harmony people and all Americans are just all in the... That, that's, nothing is as simple as that. This thing that I love about our work, inherently the turbulence comes from the complexity where there are no two of us that are the same in any culture, in any way. I love that. And so I always assume that the collective wisdom of the group is so much greater than my wisdom alone or your wisdom or someone else sitting in the group. We always trust that the group collectively will rise to the occasion. And I have never been disappointed around that. The ability for us to learn as a collective has been really awe-inspiring and always is. And particularly when it's across the cultural divide related to nationality or language or religion or generational difference, that has a major impact, not just on the other people in the room, but also on, on, on us as the consultant, as it should be. Because again, we're not teaching them some intellectual five important things to do. We're setting a container. We're saying, what do you see? What are you noticing? Let's talk about that. What's the importance of any of that with how you lead and partner moving forward? And what do you do to how do you replicate that moving forward out of here back at work or in your personal life? Yeah, I think a lot of our stance is one of humility, too. We have a sense of knowing how much we don't know we don't know. And yet we know there's still parts that we don't even realize that we're bringing in. Like you said, from our Western perspective, I did a session in India, over a third of the people were under 25 in the room. So we did these generational fishbowls where we broke up into three groups and they actually wrote some statements about what they don't have to deal with that other generations have to. And then they wrote statements about some of the things they're tired of being from that generation relating to the other generations. And it was great dialogue amongst them. And I was like, gosh, some of these are the very same dynamics that I experience in the U.S. across generation. And yet I knew I was naive to even think that because it's so much more complex than that. Yeah. And again, that's the beauty of this work is that the complexity is really awe-inspiring in some ways. And I think back to the authenticity and humility that is really a hallmark of our consultant core. And we're never done with deepening our and sharpening our humility muscle or strengthening our humility muscle, rather. I think the piece that is at times challenging is the construct of how do I gain rapport so that I always assume, particularly when I'm working in Europe especially, but this is in other parts of the world, it just shows itself. It reveals itself more slowly and it's a little more clouded when I'm in Asia. And these are obviously gross generalizations I'm making right now. But the work that I see in, in Europe a lot of time for me to do is I'm always aware that at some percentage of level in the room, there are someone sitting there saying, is this American old white guy man who's about to speak to me going to be another one of those clueless Americans that basically just wants to come tell me and the rest of the Europeans how we're supposed to be? 
I get that that comes from they've probably had a lot of experiences where that's been their reality. And so what they're not expecting anything different. And it's not about faking it because that that actually contributes to it. But it's it's about recognizing for me to be curious. So it's not it's not don't make stuff up, but to be curious about what is important in this part of the world right now. I try to come in and read the papers beforehand, understand what's happening. I think for me personally, one of the most important parts of my learning was going way back to when I was 16 years old and had the privilege of being a, an exchange student for a year. And I was in New Zealand, which is an English-speaking country, but it's a British Commonwealth country. That experience really helped grounded me, and it pushed me out of my suburban East Coast U.S. reality where the world came to us then, as it still does now, around culture, music, politics. Everybody knows more about our country than we certainly know times five about many other countries. But it's about understanding that there were different orientations. There's different things people look at. When people say football in the mass majority of the world, they're talking about a different sport than American football. And to, and to not know that or to gloss over that loses credibility. And it seems like almost like an insignificant piece, but gaining that credibility, even if it's saying, I don't begin to understand what it's like for you culturally in this country. And so I'm not here to tell you much of anything. I'm here for us to have a experience in a moment that is hopefully relevant for you. And our role is to hold the container with you. And that's I recognize people are sometimes not even expecting that. They're like, really? Are companies paying you to do that? That's not helpful because a lot of cultures, they they give expertise right. to the consultant standing in front of them. And when we're saying we're not the expert, that in itself can be a cultural faux pas. There's lots to juggle. I love that complexity. And I think that we don't do it perfectly. We make mistakes. We're human. I think, though, as a company, we've done a really good job over the years, and this has been shown to me over and over with the quality of the work that we're seeing our clients do in different geographies around the world of creating a space where we're having, we're having some really vital, difficult conversations. And as you said, a lots of times they're really similar and other times they're very different, and usually it's some of both. One of the things I, I think you have discovered Bill, is a framework that you have shared with the rest of us around insiders and outsiders and that there's a globalness to that because it plays out everywhere. People who are insiders and outsiders around the globe is sort of unique to each setting. Can you talk about how you discovered that and how you've been found using that framework? I don't think we created anything. I don't, I don't believe there's anything I've ever created. I sort of borrowed, pulled things together. What I love about the construct of insider-outsider is it's a fairly simplistic, without some of the angst that gets attached to words about good and bad. It's, it's sort of a value-neutral terms. It usually is for most folk. And it's the notion that, as I like to say, you know, an insider are people that are in groups that basically in cultures and systems set the norms and make the rules without knowing that they're setting the norms and making the rules. They're a little bit like the fish in water. Fish doesn't know it's in water because if it's not in water, it's dead. So insiders are usually the last to know about their own culture because they're always in it. Outsiders, on the other hand, are people that are having to know insider culture, but their own identity is different than that typical insider culture. And they want to hold on and maintain that because that's a core part of who they are. And they're having to literally do a cultural divide a foot in two different worlds and be expert in both. They don't want to lose their own identity from their outsider upbringings. And they also have to figure out how to become an expert in the insider world because that's where their paycheck comes from. That's where their just social street cred, whatever that happens to be. And lots of times when insiders hear this, they can immediately jump to, well, you're blaming me for your predicament or you're a victim. And I said, no, this is not about blame because none of this is anybody's personal fault. And not just insiders, but people in leadership roles are responsible for understanding how this dynamic, you've said this oftentimes, that for a lot of insiders, one of the greatest ahas that they have is they have an assumption that everybody's, well, we're all different, we get that, but everybody's having the same experience, or I have struggles, you have struggles, and they don't understand the group identity piece that adds layers of complexity to how some people's struggles are so much different than my struggle. And it doesn't mean that I haven't worked hard or other insiders haven't worked hard. So that that 
terminology of insider-outsider, I've found enormously valuable. I think the other thing it does for us is that we're not on point as the consultant in the room to name who is the in-group and who's the out-group, who's the insider-outsider. That's up to each individual. And actually, each individual, they oftentimes see it differently in their own system. So what seems like a almost binary, simplistic designation of this and that is actually much more, like everything else, much more complex than that. But it gets us thinking about power dynamic about normativity in terms of what's seen as the normal way of doing things. And ultimately, all of us are outsiders and insiders, not to the same degree, but it's through my outsiderness. So what I'm understanding for me as a kid who has grew up fairly physically large and somewhat overweight, that humiliation that I felt of always never fitting into the really fit, kids that always got picked in gym class to be the, the best athletes or to get to have the, the primary positions there. I felt what that was like. I felt like I was didn't belong. That doesn't mean that I understand what my female colleagues are experiences as the outsider group, but at least gives me some empathy and some curiosity was understanding, well, here's what my experience is like around my body shape and size. I'm wondering what it's like for you and if you're willing to talk with me about what you experience. Or even more personally, is there anything that I'm doing and saying that makes you feel that you don't belong? And it's not the job of the outsider to have to educate me and to coach and guide me, but being able to have that conversation with myself and other insiders is as valuable as always turning to the outsider on the team saying, how are we doing on this diversity thing? So that framing has helped to take away some of the oppressor, oppressed, victim, a lot of loaded language. It's still there, a lot of loaded language, and we can get into some looking at some things and some, with some new ways. I found a lot easier, and I found that to be true across the, across the globe, and starting first in the U.S. and Canada, but also in other, other countries as well. What are some um, really striking examples of sort of insider-outsider dimensions that are unique around different parts of the world? You've been in the Middle East. You've been in all over different interesting places. Done a little bit of work in China, not a lot. And I say for me, China has been the most fascinating and the most challenging work for me in ways that are similar, yet different than some visits I've had for South Africa, where I know you spent some time recently for us as a company and also spent some time there. What I've noticed in China is that the first time I went there, I was doing just a day with a group of executives. It was a U.S. company. These were all Chinese executives. They all spoke Mandarin as their first language. They were fluent in English. And of course, the session was English because I can barely speak anything other than English. Or I can barely speak English, let alone can't speak anything else. And literally in the first 30 minutes, in a very, very polite way, they sort of informed me that they had no gender issues the men and women, they had no gender issues. This was China and Mao, because of the Cultural Revolution in 48, had leveled the playing field. And true, men and women were egalitarian. It was a, and, and the, these were people my age in their late 50s and 60s, and they were, they were convinced that there was no problem. Now, having led into that, I had done some research, Chinese research about what is, particularly around gender equality, what are some things going on? And I kept reading these articles particularly from younger women researchers who talked about the advent of Western capitalism coming to China and what the Chinese economy has just skyrocketed and done in the growth of the last 30 years there. And a lot of younger women were a lot of like the women of my generation in the U.S. were experiencing incredible forms of discrimination, not just from men, but from other women, from their families and whatnot. And so this is almost like a role reversal. The younger women were facing all this. The older women my age say, I don't see what the big deal is, which is almost the reverse that I, we see sometimes now in the U.S., where the older women that are late in their career who have been on the front lines of the issue of gender equality in the U.S. for the last 40 years are then feeling the fatigue of seeing younger women just sort of say, I don't see what the big deal is. So it was almost reverse of that. That was fascinating. On top of that, there was a term, and I'm sorry, I don't know what the Mandarin word is, but it was called leftover woman. And if you were age 27 female and not married, that's what you got called. And so there was a lot of pressure on young women to find a partner, a male partner for that matter, and to be married. And in that society, oftentimes, the property always was in the husband's name. My experience now, there's a lot of young women in China and in Japan and South Korea in particular 
who are rejecting that notion and they're staying single Mm -hmm. because their financial independence allows them to remain much more intact, which think about it in some of those cultures is really going against the, the societal norm of group harmony. Korea was another one. I know I'm moving now off the Chinese continent to Korea, did some work in Korea last summer and did some reading beforehand. And there's there's a real schism among many young people in that country between men and women because of social media. It's almost a fight around, a, it's a gender war. I mean, it's the best I can see. Very pointed. And we watched a lot of young people in this group that we're working with. These are young execs who are very vocal and very verbal about the gender struggle that was going on in society that was actually spilling into the corporate workplace. And this was with an American company that is known globally for its incredible work around gender equality, but it was still sort of spilling into that organization. It was fascinating to watch. Both of those examples, sounds like the younger folks were popping the bubble of denial from the older folks in China. Absolutely. Which is, again, one of the things, you know, we've had we've had Americans and Europeans and others that are our age say, well, we don't really need to do anything about this because the next generation is going to sort of work our way out of it. And to some degree, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. I'm watching my young grandchildren who are still in single digits, eight years and younger. I am counting, hoping that they inherit a world where my two granddaughters have much more opportunity than my significant other and my daughter did, and we're seeing progress. And at the same time, that naivete to just think we can just wait this out, really? Uh, Last time I checked, gender inequality has been going on for not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years, same thing with race. So this is not going to simply go away because we've got the younger generation that's rejecting that notion. And thank goodness they are speaking up and challenging these young people are hopefully salvation for a lot of the the issues that we're facing as a a planet these days. What's unique about the Middle East, the work that you've done there? I have loved the Middle East because it's an area where I have bumped into my own unconscious bias over and over and over. And I've had some of the most stimulating and fascinating and surprising experiences with young professionals in particular, again, in Morocco, some work in Dubai with people from Pakistan, India, Saudi, Egypt, Morocco. Fascinating to watch the cultural divide of misinformation that we're fed about the other. I always say we fear the most what we know the least. And so, for example, I'm just going to bring in this notion about the religious intolerance and fear that we have. And so in the Muslim world, I think a lot of, particularly in North America, there's a lot of misinformation because of the small group of what I consider crazies who have appropriated a particular religion and that has an impact on billions of other people. What I've found in the Muslim world around this is a curiosity around looking at gender equality that I found refreshing and incredibly inspiring. And I've seen this happen in all of those locations, particularly from younger people. We haven't done any work directly in Saudi, for example, but particularly in the heart of the Arab world, when I have worked with some Saudis and I have been really impressed by how they are addressing a set of beliefs around the role of women in work, which I have a hard time wrapping my head around because I just disagree fundamentally, but yet I'm seeing in that setting change happening. I worked with one company that was doing two things that I found incredibly empowering and energizing related to trying to not just recruit, but retain women in the organization. First, they had to have separate entrances for the men and women. They can't co-mingle. When they were interviewing women, they would invite the parents and the significant other to come into the interview with that woman because they knew that if she did not have support at home, she was not going to be able to sort of stay in that job. And then on top of that, this particular company I worked with, these roles had a lot of travel in that region. Women are not, in many of those cultures, are not allowed to travel by themselves. They have to be accompanied by a male relative, if not their husband or brother or whatnot. That company was paying the expenses for the male to accompany that woman on business travel, which I found a really novel way of saying, okay, we're going to work within this system and we're still going to provide opportunity. And 
for me, that's like, okay, we're making progress. So they're talking about that. So I'm seeing a lot more in the Arab world. I'm seeing uh, a willingness to have conversation that is energizing and inspiring to me. One other story, I did some work in Israel last year, and I had, um, that was fascinating. It's my first time in Israel. It wasn't a long piece of work, so and it's only one piece of work. But I had two Palestinians that were coming over, and one in particular, one was a man, one was a woman. They were suppliers for this, again, customer service or consumer products company, and they were in Ramallah. And this woman was so taken by the work, she said, would you be willing to come to Ramallah, I have a lot of men in my organization that really need to do this work. And I think, as you know, Michael, our, our work has largely been about engaging the insiders. So we do a lot of work in the U.S. with white men. I found that she's another incredibly courageous person. She saw the need to engage the men in her professional life. So we're still working on putting together potentially some, some work that we would do in Ramallah with these Palestinian men. I love that because those really are stretch experiences. Talk about being out of your comfort zone. And again, I think our work, the value of the work comes not because we, we are giving them do this advice to fix this, but it's because we are basically brokering a conversation, helping them to see that they can have these courageous conversations in the way that works for them culturally. Everybody has a responsibility to be a part of that conversation. What you just mentioned at that Last part, Bill, about insiders seeing their insiderness. I think that's a unique thing to, fairly unique to our approach, is that so often the outsider group has to do the educating around their outsiderness or not feeling included about raising the bar, bringing up issues, and how much we work with insiders, understanding their insiderness, which means blind spots. And that means all of us. You and I have elements of insiderness. We have elements of outsiderness. And we can use our outsiderness to empathize what might be like for others. But really, it's about what is the intervention amongst insiders to do with each other? How do we raise each other's awareness? How do we challenge and support each other? How do we intervene in ways where it removes the burden from the outsiders? Yeah, and I think you and I have seen this in the 25 years of work that we've gotten to do first in the U.S. and Canada and then these other parts of the world. That experience about doing work with insiders has to largely be grounded in us asking and helping them to answer the question repeatedly, what's in it for me? What's in it for me as a man? What's in it for me in this case because of my white skin? What's in it for me as a heterosexual? Which is different than saying, how can I help those poor downtrodden outsiders who I'm feeling so badly for because I'm just realizing that they're having a different experience than I am? That by itself can feel patronizing. It's uh, actually not helpful to some degree. They're not helpless and incapable. So when we do our work with other insiders, And we look at what's the cost to me as a man who has been conditioned to have a very limited range of emotion and to think that I'm still being a full human and to do that over not just years, but decades. And then watch the correlation in many cultures where a lot of times women are in much higher percentages of involved with mental health treatment psychological therapy and counseling. And it's not because women have more problems, because there's more permission for women to get help, to seek help versus men. We've been conditioned that we're somehow supposed to suck it up, go it alone, don't show no chinks in the armor. There's a human cost to our our ability to relate with our sons and daughters, if we're parents, with other men in our lives, and also with the partners, if we're heterosexuals, our female partners or our male partners, if we're not. That range of emotion is not a female attribute. It's a human attribute. That's one of the costs, and that's one of the number of, of costs. And I love watching insiders rediscover what's in it for them because for lots of times they've never thought about looking at inclusion and diversity is that it's always about we got to help the others we got to help those outsiders mm-hmm. yeah help other people with quote unquote their issues i love the part of me that's always been on a track to reclaim my emotions to reclaim my whether it's anger sadness fear any of that to and actually joy to actually be able to say that doesn't cancel out my rationality or my my credibility. It actually brings credibility. And that whole reframe of culture as 
courage as vulnerability and that we don't have to stay stuck in this cultural box that says show no chinks in the armor actually showing chinks showing what's under the armor actually is refreshing for people that it creates more trust it creates more openness creates more authenticity gives me more permission to just bring all of my humanness and those are examples of what at least in in the US white men and globally many men feel I think discover in this journey of what's in it for us. Yeah, yeah, that sense of being able to be vulnerable and to see that as a core strength as opposed to a form of weakness. It's been incredibly empowering for me. I still got lots more work to do is there's no there there for any of it, but it's also been really gratifying to watch other men and other insiders do various forms of their own version of that work. And the other thought is to use our privilege honorably as if I'm an insider, for instance, being male, I can speak up around a diversity issue or a a woman is not heard or she's interrupted. I can intervene with another man who's doing that and ask him to do that for me when he sees me doing it and that we can have each other's backs like that instead of her having to be the one to decide to do it. So how do we as insiders use our insiderness to support inclusion? Absolutely. With that, it's, you know, again, it's that adage of notice your privilege and learn to use it honorably. I think with that is while we're intervening when it's not going well, we're also equally intervening when it is going well and being able to point out, Michael, I really appreciate how I watched you share a level of vulnerability amongst me and the other five men that were sitting at this table. I want you to know that I saw that. I really value that. And I'm knowing at times in watching you do that, that sometimes it's really hard for me. I'd like to do more of that. Would you be willing to help me? That positive intervention is as equally important as when it doesn't go well and somebody says something that is invalidating or dismissive of another, and that's not their intention, obviously, most of the time. And I am constantly, as I know you are, really coaching and supporting insiders to say, make sure that you are proactively pointing out when this is going well so that we can live our way into doing this more inclusively with each other, let alone our outsider colleagues, as opposed to just always pointing out when we can do better. Because I think that punitive piece has already had a negative impact on many insiders where they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're waiting to be blamed and shamed into submission. They're waiting to be told it's your personal fault that all this stuff is happening, not just in the system or the community, but in the whole country or the half of the globe or whatever. Yeah, I agree. And I think I have learned that skill probably the highest by watching you do it over and over, Bill, over the years of just constantly validating men, validating white men who step out of that cultural box and do behaviors that are interrupting of each of us from our blind spots or creating more partnerships. And I've watched you validate and just, I just see the men shine in that light. And I've learned to do that myself. And I think the the white male culture's problem-solving focus always has us default to critical. Let's just pay attention to what's broken. Why do we fix it? And that validation of what's working well, that is a core piece. Well, I know what you just said brought up. I was in November. I was in Brisbane, Australia, doing some work with a group of largely men from a mining industry. So these are every stereotype you can might imagine was in the room. And I know for me... When we're working with a new group and we're in that first hour, you know that someone at some point is going to challenge the premise that you might have put out saying this is a place we're trying to create a safe place, blah, blah. They're going to challenge that. And they're going to see how does this consultant respond? Does he actually walk his talk? And I had a guy that did that. He basically took issue with something that I had said or how he heard it more importantly And I stopped and I said, and I've seen you do this as well. I said, first of all, I just want to take a moment. I want to say thank you for wherever this came from, you just noticing this. I appreciate whatever it's taking you to sort of put that out there, that there's no need for us to agree with each other today and tomorrow. Actually, I'm always suspicious if everybody's agreeing with each other, whether we're telling each other the truth. And Our work is to really listen to understand one another. It's not about listening to agree and not to confuse understand and agreement. 
But I really acknowledged, validated him. I said, I want to make sure I heard you right. Is this what you said? He said, yeah, you got it. And then my experience is, is when I'm doing that, and that's coming from a genuine place, authentic place. It's not just saying the words because I got to do it. And even though thinking the guy's a jerk or whatever, it's just, it's really letting go of my judgment, which is hard at times because I'm human too. And this man, the rest of the time, he went from, I'm a hostage. I don't want to be here. You could just see this on his demeanor. I knew I could have predicted that he would have said that just by his body language, et cetera. He was not happy to be there. And I just wanted to acknowledge that there he was. And I really appreciate it. He didn't need to say that. Thank you. And then that shifted him. You know, he was still contrarian, but it's like, yeah, it's like, bring that into it. Let's, we don't expect everybody to agree. We, this, this, we don't need to agree. Mm-hmm. We need to hear each other. Thank you. I just had this great connection with him for the rest of the rest of the couple of days together. I so admire people who are courageous to state their truth rather than just to sort of sit and stew in it. And he was a gift for the rest of the room because then people could actually, and I know you've had examples like that as well, people could actually be where they're at rather than thinking I got to be where, I'm, where my boss is or I got to just talk the party line or whatever. Yeah, he kind of created safety, didn't he? He creates by saying something that, is in disagreement with you or his own viewpoint, he took a risk and that that just made it safer for everybody else to disagree or say their own perspective. Well, I think that's a magic piece, that magic that you described, which is allowing people to bring, I think we welcome everything. I think we don't say no to people. We just say your view of the world is not wrong. It might be incomplete, just like mine is. So we welcome everybody's perspective as valid and a part of the whole picture that we're trying to see from each other. Yeah, and that goes back to what I said a little while ago about when a group really raises its EQ as a collective level, and we start to really say what is true on our hearts and minds without having to say, well, who agrees with me on this? It doesn't matter whether anybody else in the room agrees with someone on this. My experience is that that collective EQ has a really iterative multiplier effect on that group's learning ability and capacity to stay curious and to wonder about why someone else thinks the way that they do without dismissing or invalidating their own perspective or another perspective. And I think particularly given the place that we're at in this globe right now and many with many governments, including our own here, with the way in which we have learned because of the tribal division that's happening and the way in which we demonize the other when we disagree with, I'm seeing that as a great threat, not just to the democracies of the world, but our ability to be in partnership with one another. I don't want to be around people that I just agree with all the time. We have a lot of vexing problems and challenges on this globe. My way of solving it, as brilliant as I think it might be, is not going to do it. So I need to be challenged and pushed, and I want to challenge and push others. And I want to do that from a place of listening deeply. And getting back to some of that takes a lot of rigor and perseverance. And I think that's one of the things that we have had the privilege of watching our clients do in dialogue and partnership with each other for a business context, but also many of our clients are in communities where they also want to make a difference for the common good of that organization, that community, that society that they're part of, rather than just because of a profit motive. I was just uh, talking to uh, Edgar Schein, who's an author on organizational culture and a lot of other books. And he and his son have had this interesting discovery. They said a lot of the shallower relationships that people typically have at work that just are controlled by job descriptions and roles, a lot of those are going to be replaced by robots, that interaction. And it's this level, next level down of these, what you said, this EQ, emotional intelligence type of conversation where there's deep listening and deep validation and hearing each other. That's the asset that we have as humans to be able to connect and use that skill across the globe. And that's needed today. Any last thoughts or advice for folks around the world who are thinking about this global perspective? The last thing I'd try to say tonight, Michael, is this work is um, iterative and it's never ending. As you know, I was just on this last trip to Asia. I spent three weeks and some personal time and I was in an Ayurvedic health center in, in India outside of Bangalore. And I met a guy who's doing yoga and breathing and meditation that I was just profoundly impacted by. 
and basically working on now setting up something where I want him to come to the U.S. because his way of seeing people really fit with our way, yet it was so radically different. But there was still synergy there, and I'm, I'm really curious. I want to do a I want to do a, a session. We've been talking about doing the next deeper dive with insiders. I want to do a session, which right now, for lack of a better word, I'm calling the, the conscious leader, where his ability to help me sit with myself, key learnings for me around surrender. It's the way in which a lot of my control of wanting to control my entire environment and dictating the rules and conditions of that. I got really clear and got saw that, and I just sort of giving that away was just like it was incredibly energizing. I was profoundly uh, joyous uh, in ways that I hadn't felt before. And so I got really intrigued with, again, the West and the East, the way in which those two come together. You know, obviously not the first, second, or third person to do that. I think it's emblematic for me of the way in which the additive effect of how we look at the same thing in different ways and what we're doing is not right. It's just a way that we've constructed. What he was doing has a lot of similarities, but it's very different. I'm really intrigued by that. And I'm, I've got lots of new energy and passion to go sort of pursue that. So we'll see what happens there. That sounds intriguing. One thing I'm always struck by with you, Bill, is that you find engagement across people wherever you go. I've never been in a taxi where you haven't had some kind of learning moment engaging the driver. And so you're finding that insight and inspiration from your yoga instructor is yet another example of that. Yeah, and that's after I spent the last 30 years having my own negative experience about yoga, which is my own work to do. <laughs> so I want to go back and apologize to anybody that was involved with trying to teach me yoga for the last 30 years to say it wasn't about you, it was about me. I'm a project in progress. All right, let's go do some yoga. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit WMFDP.com slash podcast.